0: WTTS In Conversation is supported by Technology Recyclers. What happens to your obsolete electronics? It's estimated that only 18% of all electronic waste is properly recycled globally. This harms the environment, wastes natural resources, and pollutes our landfills. You should be recycling your computers and electronics Technology Recyclers has the solution. With their R2 certification, they guarantee 100% data destruction. Their state-of-the-art shredding and separation system ensures nothing ends up in landfills. They're Hoosier veteran-owned and always free to you and your company. Visit Technology Recyclers on the web. Welcome to WTTS In Conversation. I'm Matt Pelser. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee, Glenn Johns has made his mark on music as the engineer of some of the most famous albums of all time, Abbey Road, Let It Be, Led Zeppelin's self-titled, Eagles' self-titled. He produced and engineered Eric Clapton's Slow Hand, Rolling Stone's Get Your Ya-Ya's Out, and the first four Steve Miller Band albums. This month, Glenn Johns turns 80 on the 15th, so we thought we'd revisit Paul Mendenhall's 2015 conversation with Glenn Johns following the release of his memoir, Soundman. Hey, Glenn, thanks for talking to me.
1: Well, my pleasure.
2: First of all, just to get a complete feel for the process, Glenn, and, and to help me and the listeners understand it, uh, could you explain the difference between the recording engineer and the producer and any other levels in between?
1: Uh, okay, a recording engineer is responsible for the sound, literally the recorded sound of uh, the music he's, uh, he's engineering. Um, it's a, it's a somewhat technical job, not, not as technical as some people might make it out, but um, it, it's a skill in itself. A record producer, however, is an entirely different being uh, and is responsible as uh, the equivalent would be uh, a director uh, to a movie. Um, he's responsible for a budget. He's responsible for the uh, artistic content of, of the record. He's responsible for the, the supervising the performance of the artist uh, and helping the artist create, if it's a self-contained person who's writing their own material, helping them present their uh, their material as best as possible. Uh, so it's, it's a very creative role, and would be in charge of the engineer if the engineer was a separate individual. So he, he, he would be directing the engineer as to what sort of sound he might want. He may be involved with the arrangements of the material. Uh, so that's the quickest way I can describe it.
2: Well, sure. And I guess that that's obvious, and you probably prefer to be the producer.
1: Uh, actually, uh, I I I very much like engineering, and for most of the records I've made, nearly all uh, I've engineered what I've produced. So it's a, it's a lot easier not to have to go through someone else to achieve the sound you want if you know how to do it yourself.
2: S- sound. And so, in fact, I enjoy both roles enormously. Soundman man includes the behind-the-scenes stories of recording these albums but you also told a couple of like kind of what i would describe as heart in the throat experiences when you were out traveling with the musicians uh uh stories involving the stones and, and steve miller come to mind could you like, tell ta- about the stones and and uh when you when you knew one of them was carrying a little bit more than his uh, underwear in a suitcase
1: Yes, the Rolling Stones' entry into Sweden on the beginning of their uh, of a European tour, it would be in the middle to late sixties. Uh, I don't remember precisely when, Around sixty-seven, maybe sixty-six, sixty-seven. And uh, Brian Jones had uh, a, um, a, a substance in, in his underpants, and uh, the, everyone else had been uh, had been checked by. Uh, by the customs and the whole thing was being filmed they'd allowed an entire their entire media into the customs hall to watch the rolling stones being done basically <laughs> as a message to the youth of the country uh,
2: uh, oh it pretty, no it,
1: it was pretty awful and, and uh anyway he got away with it I, I, I could go on but he got away with it <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know it seems uh, lots of times in recording these albums and these artists you get into a uh, a dysfunctional situation, Uh, like for the time you were called in to clean up a mess when Mick Jones and Joe Strummer had, what, recorded actually two separate combat rocks? Is that how it went down?
1: No, not two separate. They'd they'd made what was a double album uh, um, in America, um, and they delivered it to uh, CBS Records in London, which was the label they were signed to. And the head of A&R there, who was uh, Steve Wimwood's brother, Muff Wimwood, had decided that he didn't really feel it was right for, uh, for that time with them and, and wanted it really to be a single album, I think. But it was a bit of a mess and, and um, they, Mick Jones and Joe Strummer were slightly at loggerheads as to, as to how it should be completed. So um, it was suggested that I, I remix the, the whole record and, and see what I could make of it, really. I think it was—it was probably my idea to make it a, a single album. I can't really remember, but I'm pretty sure it was.
2: Glenn, what was the most uncomfortable uh, situation you can ever recall being in?
1: Oh, good lord, alive! That's a very tricky. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know what? I, I probably, if I could remember, I probably, probably wouldn't be prepared to talk about it because <laughs> it would be detrimental to those around me. And that's, you know, uh, one is one is uh, over the years. Uh, obviously, I've been I've been party to a lot of stuff going on. But it's a bit like being a doctor, you know. You're not really allowed to talk about it. Or if you you did, you you probably wouldn't work again, you know. People wouldn't try.
2: Well, there are some some pictures in the book, for example, one one involving you and Crosby, Sills, and Nash. I suppose you just have to be assertive in these situations, don't you?
1: Well, yes. I mean, the thing is that no two people are the same, no two artists are the same, and the situation that you may find yourself in with one from one minute to the next can vary tremendously. Very often, Artists is under, under a huge amount of pressure, commercial pressure, if they've been successful, to continue their success. Uh, and it, it, it isn't always the most comfortable position for them to be in. When you all regroup after the, a year later after you've had a very successful record, I remember thinking on many occasions, just from my perspective as a producer, driving into the studio for the first time, having had a very successful album the last time in, thinking, Christ, how, how on earth did we do that? Because you know, actually you don't really have any idea of how you achieved what you did that was so successful. It sort of happened. So the pressure is tremendous. And when there's pressure, then, then temperaments can go awry. And part of the job of a producer is to try and placate those circumstances. And uh, hopefully, that's what I've been able to do.
2: <laughs> you write uh, very kindly about one of our favorites here, uh, a guy who was born and raised in Indianapolis, John Hyatt. Um, and you said in, in the book that he can paint a picture in a line that would take most mortals an entire page. You enjoyed working with John.
1: I'm an astonishingly talented man. Uh, certainly, if not the best, one of the, one of the best songwriters I've ever been in the room with. An amazing, uh, has an amazing energy uh, and professional uh, approach to what he does. Uh, I can't speak highly enough of him. I, I, I loved working with him. I think I made two or three albums with him, and, and uh, it was a joy to work with him, I tell you.
2: Yeah, and your son, Ethan, also kind of got a leg up from John.
1: Yes, John insisted on, on using him. I played John some demos that Ethan had made when he was setting out as a songwriter, and uh, which my son had played on as well as written the material. And uh, I just I was just showing off, really, being a dad. And John... Decided that he liked the way Ethan played drums uh, as much uh, enough to use him on the next record, which he persuaded me to do. I didn't really think it was a particularly hmm. good idea, but John insisted. Uh, and it certainly was a great experience for Ethan, yeah.
2: Now, Ethan's ended up following in, in his father's footsteps, uh, yes. producing uh, The Counting Crows, Hard Candy, uh, albums for Kings of Leon, some early Ryan Adams albums. And yet, the kind of unusual thing is Ryan called you in uh, 2011 to produce Ashes and Fire. What, what went into that?
1: Well, that, he, he, my son, I think, has made the best Ryan Adams records uh, that Ryan ever made, and uh, that was how I was introduced to him. I met him several times when my son was working with him, and there was a, there was a period of four or five years when they didn't work together, um, and I constantly was talking to my son Ethan saying you should really work with Ryan again because I think they're the best records you, the pair of you have ever made and uh, it transpired that Ryan had decided that he wanted to work with Ethan again having had this lapse of working with him and he called him up and Ethan was very busy for the next few months and so Ryan said well do you think your dad would do it so uh, my, my son said absolutely I'm sure he'd love to so Ryan gave me a call I was sort of I was the second choice to
2: myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh,
1: but it was great. I was thrilled to bits. I think he's an astonishing talent. And uh, I had a great time making the
2: record. Well, now, it's no secret that Ryan Adams is, uh, well, he's just a, uh, an artist, you know, and he, he can be a little, well, he can be quite volatile uh, at times. A, tr- <laughs> a, a true artist disposition, right? Oh,
1: well, yeah, <laughs> if you like. <laughs> Okay, I'll go along with that, yeah. <laughs>
2: okay. Well, was that, was that, in any way, did did Ethan warn you about anything?
1: Well, they actually stopped working for a period of four or five years for that very reason. I think Ethan found him quite difficult to deal with at one point. He is quite, um, he's difficult to read, Ryan. You know, he goes through periods of being the most charming and delightful and polite young man uh, you could possibly wish to meet. And then... Um, Someone else visits, so it's, it's it's difficult to know. It depends which side of bed he gets out of. It. But but the, the long and the short of it is, whatever the the makeup of the guy is, he is the most astonishing songwriter and uh, and performer. And it, although it wouldn't be the easiest person on the planet to work with, it's it, there are occasions when he is the easiest. It's, it's a complete
2: dichotomy, Really, I, 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 what, whatever you have to go through is worth it. I can tell by talking to you what a good uh, diplomat and and mediator you would be in these situations, a skill that I'm I'm sure you had to employ frequently.
1: Yes, it's part of the job. Uh, uh, Obviously, you're you're there for many reasons, and and equally, each artist has different requirements. No two situations are the same when you're producing records, and that's the joy of the job, really. You learn something every time you walk in the door.
2: Glenn Johns, the book is Sound Man. Glenn, thank you very much. It's my pleasure.
0: This has been WTTS In Conversation with support from Technology Recyclers. Subscribe to this podcast and find more information at WTTSFM.com. I'm Matt Pelser. Thanks for listening.